Welcome to Holy Trinity Episcopal Church in Nevada City, California. Our message this morning is brought to us by our priest, Brad Helmuth, and we are on the 16th week after Pentecost. Friday night, Pepsi and I drove down to Sacramento. I'm trying to remember where in Sacramento was. I know it's off Business 80 and going around 50 and then coming around over there. But at a place called the North Hall, which is an alcoholic anonymous, alcoholics anonymous group, that means. Uh, and we were going to be supportive of and help celebrate uh, two years of sobriety for a longtime friend of hers. And so we went there. I don't know how many of you have ever been to an AA meeting, an NA meeting, any of the 12-step programs, those that suffered from addiction. Um, it was an interesting meeting, to say the least. The room was not very well appointed. It was a little bit kind of chaotic in its organization. The group gathered there was fairly eclectic. I'm going to say it was really eclectic. There were some interesting characters there. There are people that had been in sobriety for a long time, and there were those who were brand new, like within 24 hours, brand new, decided. And it was an interesting place to be. I've always heard as sort of not a running joke, but sort of a nod to the cultural presence of AA, Somebody would say, hi, my name is whatever. Everybody would go, you know, hi, my name is Brad, I'm a sinner. Hi, Brad, right? Kind of that type of thing. And when I was at that meeting, I'm, I'm not going to say I was shocked, but to be present with people who, before they would speak, would come up and say, hi, I'm whoever, and I'm an alcoholic. And some would say I'm an alcoholic and an addict. It was very humbling to be in the presence of those who recognized their own messiness. Very humbling. It was a beautiful community of what some would call misfits gathered together to make community where they had none. Where they found themselves dying in their own disease and addiction. And to be raised from that into this community that was loving, diverse, was a beautiful thing to see. What I really love is they started out to meeting, if you've never been to one, and I've never been to one, this particular time together, this particular meeting, they recognized anyone that was there that was brand new to sobriety, literally within like 24 hours, 48 hours, 72 hours. And they acknowledged them, and they got something, got ten. But then the rest of the service was celebrating uh, those who, within this month of September, were celebrating uh, annual anniversaries from sobriety. And the first person to get up was a woman that was celebrating 45 years of being sober. Now, she was the mama hen. You could tell she was the matriarch. She was the one that ruled the roost. She got up there and the room hushed. Because in her, in the reality of her recovery, lies the hope for everybody else that hasn't made 45 years. 
that they could see in someone else themselves reaching a goal that they themselves want to achieve to maintain their health, to maintain their relationships, to live a life worthy of living in their mind. The hope in the room was palpable. I started at 45 and then someone was 38 years sober, and then in the high 20s, the mid 20s, low 20s, in the teens somewhere, and then our friend two years, and somebody else one year. And for every person that stood up, someone bore witness for them, to them. In other words, you had to have a buddy come up. And everyone said something nice and affirming about that person, about what they admired, about the 12 steps, about working the program, about all those things, and it was beautiful to see. There was an understanding within this community that everyone was messy, that everyone needed a community to maintain their sobriety and keep them on the path that they wished to go, which is being sober. It was beautiful. And the hope, again, was so immense within that room. I was struck by, as I sat back, the message that was communicated there about community. And in particular about communities of hope. The church is meant to be a community of hope. That's God's design and God's intention. In the Old Testament reading from uh, Jeremiah, there's this little obscure sounding passage about a piece of property being purchased. And when you read that, you go, why is that a big deal? Why would that make the lectionary? Because they've been dispersed from their land. And the fact that he was able to purchase that land meant that God would restore them to their land. And they called and remembered to roll up, you know in the reading, roll up that deed and put it in that clay pot to remember for later. Not in a jeweled pot, not in a fancy treasure chest, but in a clay pot, something common and fragile to speak about God's relationship, our relationship to God, our relationship to this world. But for those people that was speaking hope, that God would indeed restore them to that which they had lost. The Gospel reading this morning is an interesting one. There's some difficult pieces to it when you try to understand it. But basically it's a rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man is really rich and Lazarus is really not so rich. In fact, he's really he's so poor and destitute that his aspirations are to get the crumbs that drop from the table of the rich man. There's poor and then there's that. And what's interesting about the dichotomy that's set up here is that the story paints it as if Lazarus can actually see what the rich man is eating and he's just wanting some and he doesn't even get some. Not even something that drops from the table. Quite the distinction. 
But then in the story, what ends up is they both die, and Lazarus goes to the bosom of Abraham, and uh, the rich man goes to Hades, and there is a gulf in between them, and the rich man now sees um, that he is being tormented, so much so that even though he wouldn't get the crumb from his table for Lazarus, he asked Abraham to ask Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in the water to touch his tongue, to cool his tongue. Rules are reversed. And Lazarus, or, uh, the rich man, is asking for some sort of relief. But Abraham points out, there, there is no relief for you. That sounds harsh. It sounds really harsh. When I look at a passage like that, if I'm going to be honest with it, I read the story of a rich man that gave nothing and, and sounded like a jerk. And I'm like, you deserve it. Have fun being tormented. But the other part of me goes, but maybe some days I'm like that. And so I don't really want to say that. Right? Because I want grace and mercy and pity too. On the days that I'm not my best self. That I don't have it all together. That I'm not, I'm not in my right mind in dealing with whomever it might be. My children, people that I'm around. In a supermarket, shopping behind people living way too slow. <laughs> right? I mean, literally parked right in the middle of an aisle, like sideways. Like, did you think anybody else wanted to shop here? And when you feel like you're really not in a great state of mind, I'm talking about those days. Because if I'm going to point the finger at somebody, then I've got to point the finger at myself. And so when I read this, this idea about... Um, there is a chasm and a gulf between that cannot be passed. That bums me out a little bit. But there's a reason there's a chasm there. It isn't as if it is random and by some luck of the draw, Lazarus drew the right stick out of the bunch. The rich man had leaned on and lived on his wealth. That is the hope that he attained to. And in the writing to 1 Timothy, Paul's writing to 1 Timothy, Paul points that out. Wealth is temporal. But it's not just about wealth. It's not just about money. When Jesus talks about money, he is talking about money, but he's talking about bigger than that. He's talking about, well, Paul says um, that money is the root of, or it says wealth is the root of all evil. Um, and, and some translations like this one, all types of evil, sometimes it's try, try to downplay it. Money is evil, you know, you don't want to put that together. But really, it's the love of money. It's because you've got to remember in context, at least for the gospel reading last week, when Jesus was talking to the disciples in Luke 16, he said, you cannot serve God and wealth. The rich man had served wealth his whole life, and he got his reward for serving wealth, which is not really much of a reward, is it? 
That's why Paul is saying, make sure you're careful about what you love. There is no hope in things. Notice that Paul doesn't say that anybody that has wealth is an evil person. Nor does Jesus say that. But simply that the love of wealth, the pursuit of wealth, the treasuring of wealth, That's what's evil. Why? It distracts us. I know lots of people that pursue wealth, and they're always on to the next thing. Right? They, they've got what they want, but then it's, that's not what they want anymore. Then they want that. And then when they get that, then there's something else that they want. And contentment is completely foreign to them. When I lived in Walla Walla, the pastor's wife, um, they would talk about houses they would see that they really loved. And she literally called it discontenting. She said, we're just discontenting. Which is a nice way of saying, we're really coveting what somebody else is having. But we don't want to feel that bad about coveting what else somebody else is having. But it's true. We look at other things that people have. I have a friend that has a lot. And while I'm not jealous of him, I do look at the things that he has. And I'm like, gosh, that's awfully nice. But I don't pursue that. I know that would be a distraction. I have got enough to pursue in my life besides pursuing wealth. Right? I've got plenty. And there's no hope in that. There's no hope in pursuing things. Things break. My oldest son Emerson, his car, um, they thought the clutch went out. The clutch actually did go out, but the transmission that went out, bearing went out, shot through the clutch, toasted both of those things. $4,000 later. He thought he was insured. I thought he was insured. I think I'm going to make a phone call to the insurance people that said they're not going to pay for it. But... My point is, is that things break. I love my car. I really do. But it's just a car. One of, one, of my, one of my people got in my car and drove my car and scratched the rims up. It's just a car. Right? And it really is. But sometimes we get caught up in things like that and we can be distracted from them and pursuing them in a way that keeps us from seeing that which is around us or identifying the hope that is, is within us or even communicating about or witnessing to the hope that is real, which is the hope in God's redemption of us. Again, that was a beautiful thing when I went into uh, and saw this Recovery group. I don't know how many people were there. I bet you there was a hundred. It was packed. It was a big hall. And of course, all the people that were celebrating their, uh, their birthdays of sobriety brought groups of people with them. And our friend, I think there was probably 12, at two tables to support him and celebrate him. But there was just a whole hall full of people And they had this hope that was in them. And this hope created a community that was vibrant for them, that helped them to succeed in their goals. 
And we have a hope too. We have a hope in something bigger than that, not to minimalize recovery, but we have a hope in something that's bigger than that. And to identify with that hope, we have to acknowledge our own messiness too. Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, there is, not, there is no one righteous, no, not one. For each of us has been saved by grace through faith, not by works of our own that we should boast. And the reason that is crucial is because it provides for us this hope that the God of the universe has reached down to make a community where there was none, to redeem that which was lost into his purpose, to deal with his purposes, to be his hands and his feet, to be loving and kind and caring, to change the face of wherever it is that his children might find themselves. For me, that's my hope. When I, when I go about my dad, it's the thing that I remember. It's the thing that I try to remember when I'm distracted by other things that, that seek to distract me. Whether it's the things going on, let's say, nationally. Right? This was a bad news week, if you were following the news, just in case. You weren't, like, you know, vacationing from social media or the news. There's no hope found in that. You could easily be distracted by that. And so when things are going on that are like that, or things that are disappointing, when relationships are broken, or when purple things happen, I always draw myself back to and remind myself of this hope. That there is more to life than just these things around me. That there is hope in the fact that God has redeemed me, that He has called me into community, and that this community strengthens me and lifts me up and encourages me and supports me in ways that I could never get anywhere else or in any other thing. Amen? Amen. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.